Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to register for NDC London, January 28th to February 1st. Back in the QE2 Conference Center in Westminster. Yep. And there's a great lineup of speakers. And of course, Scott Hanselman is coming back. And our friend Tess Ferrandez. So go to ndc-london.com to register. And if that isn't awesome enough, NDC is coming to Portugal. The new show is coming to Porto February 26th to March 1st. Two days of workshops and two days of conference. So go to ndcporto.com to register before December 31st and get early bird pricing. And get this, NDC is also coming to Copenhagen March 27th through 29th at DGIBN. It's two days of workshops and a one-day conference. Go to ndcmini.com to learn more. The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit tripping over your girlfriend's aura and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 331 with guest Stephen Taub, recorded live Monday, March 17th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose Uncle Vinny learned about concurrency at Leavenworth, Carl Franklin. Hey, New York! Welcome to .NET Rocks! All right. What a crowd. What a big crowd. Uh, I'm here at, where the heck am I? I'm here at the Microsoft Financial Services Developer Conference in New York City with my good friend Mark Dunn. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carl. Good to see you, man. Are you excited to be here? You know, Carl, I'm more excited than Governor Spitzer at the Chicken Ranch. <laughs> yeah, now that's excited. Uh, we're here talking with Stephen Taub from Microsoft. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? And um, the topic is, uh, first of all, you're the program manager of the Parallelism team at, uh, at Microsoft. What I'm, is a, official title? I'm a program manager on the, uh, the concurrency development platform at Microsoft. Okay, concurrency development. So uh, we're here to talk about an exciting 
really new thing that you guys are working on to make multi-threaded programming easy. Easier. 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 So uh, I guess we call it the parallel extensions for .NET, for the .NET framework. Mm -hmm. And um, why don't you just go ahead and tell us what it's all about? Cool. Uh, so we're working on this thing called parallel extensions to the .NET framework, or parallel extensions for short. Uh, and the idea is that uh, expressing concurrency in code today is very difficult. Um, it requires uh, rocket science knowledge of Win32 and uh, Windows and synchronization primitives and threading and everything up and down the stack. Uh, and so we're trying to make that easier and bring the ability to write multi-threaded code and to write parallel applications from the realm of the expert concurrency gods uh, to the realm of those folks who really know what they're doing in their own domain, whether they're financial developers or scientific developers or just a uh, line of business developers writing code nine to five that aren't necessarily experts in concurrency. It seems like that the, there's been a solid progression of making threading easier, going from you know working with raw threads in the Windows API and C++ to uh, you know Visual Basic was a lost cause in terms of threading. It really wasn't really wasn't all yeah, that. Yeah, inherently single threaded for the most yeah, part. Yeah, inherently single threaded. STAs, right? Single thread apartments, and then uh, the .NET framework. We have the thread object, which taken by itself is a big step forward, right? I mean, yeah, the, the thread object in .NET does wrap a lot of the um, the underlying goo that was required to create threads and, and so forth, but it still wasn't a fundamental change in what was necessary to write applications. You still had to create threads and manage them. It was right. just the and APIs for doing so were simpler. Yeah, you have to manage synchronization and locking. Exactly. And in fact, if you look at yeah. the, the system threading namespace in .NET, um, a lot of the locks uh, or synchronization primitives you see there, like manual reset event and semaphore and so forth, those are all very thin wrappers around the underlying synchronization primitives right. in Windows. And and then, of course, is the asynchronous programming model, which I really love, because mm -hmm. that's a, a nice way using delegates and callbacks to do things in a more structured way. It gives you a little more structure and framework about how you should write multi-threaded programming. But that still isn't that still isn't good enough? Well, it's good. But for example, uh, writing, if you wanted to copy from one stream to another stream, as an example, um, if you were writing a synchronous loop, you could say stream.read, and then if you got something back, stream.write, and loop background, stream.read, stream.write. Doing something like that with uh, continuation passing style, which is basically what begin, the begin whatever begin and end, end pattern, exactly, yeah. provides the asynchronous programming model, is very difficult to do in a loop. Um, and if you look at technologies like the uh, concurrency and coordination runtime from Microsoft Robotics, um, it's, it make, makes that sort of programming much easier. You can actually turn it into, uh, in effect, a, a loop that looks sequential, but it's actually doing this stuff correctly. Tell us about this thing you just mentioned from Microsoft Robotics. So the Microsoft Robotics team uh, has an, an SDK that they've released for writing robotics applications. Buried inside uh, the Robotics Studio, they have... Uh, a runtime, because a lot of the, if you look at what robots need, they need communication between, um, uh, you know, the arm and the head and whatever else. And so there's a lot of asynchronous message passing going on. And so part of the robotics studio is this little library called the concur concurrency and coordination runtime, which actually makes certain operations like if I wanted to asynchronously copy from one stream to another, very, very simple and requiring very thread, threads in the background. It's really interesting. We did, I think we talked to Nick Landry about this on the show last year. And uh, it, it was just very curious that the innovation in multi-threaded programming happened in the robotics. Well, it just shows you that innovation's happening everywhere around Microsoft. Right. But anyhow, the, there's really, if you think about parallelism, there's really two sides of it. There's 
parallelism for and concurrency for responsiveness and for doing things like asynchronous I.O. and so forth. And then there's parallelism for throughput and for saturated performance, performance yeah. and so forth. And that's really where parallel extensions to .NET Framework shines. Uh, it's all about taking your, if you have loops that you currently have today that are sequential and you want to parallelize them, it's making those run on all of the cores available in your machine. Uh, if you have a link query and you want to parallelize that, having that run on all cores on your machine. Right. So this has nothing to do with really grid computing, per se, as, as much as... Uh, multiple cores in the hardware and the processor. Right. This is focused on single nodes. So your desktop machine, or if you were writing a cluster application, like you know, we're talking a lot about this week, you could imagine having, um, if you were writing your the application to run on each node in your cluster in .NET, uh, you could use parallel extensions and scale up on each node. Interesting. So um, tell us about the different uh, parts of the parallel uh, extensions. Cool. So in, um, I guess, late November, early December, we released uh, a very early CTP, uh, customer, uh, con customer technology preview of parallel extensions. Um, and it contained two primary pieces. Um, the first is something called parallel link or parallel link to objects. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with link. Um, the idea behind plink is that we we re-implement all of the standard query operators. There's about 190, 200 of them or something, including all the overloads. And we've re-implemented all of them to implicitly use under the covers classic data parallelism techniques to automatically parallelize your link queries. Now, if you automatically parallelize a link query, are you taking a single query and just making it more efficient so that it's being split up among the multiple cores? Or are you doing multiple queries that then come back into a single set. So you could do either, but the idea behind plink is the former. I think it was the former you said. Yeah. Of uh, basically taking a single query, partitioning the data, uh, taking a look at how much parallelism is available in the hardware, partitioning the data, running the query uh, on multiple cores, and then merging the results. Well, back. it sounds a lot like that's the OS function. I mean, it's almost like you're taking the function that the OS does with scheduling applications. And you're sort of moving that up into the framework. It's really, is it the same kind of logic? And you call it task manager, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's a layer on top of what the OS provides. So the, but the OS is sort of agnostic and, and doesn't know what's happening inside of these threads. It's not that granular. It's not that granular. And so at the application level, we can say, great, I see you have this query. I see that you're doing aware followed by a select. So we're actually going to take the data set with a million items and split it up into multiple pieces, have the where and the select run on each of these various threads, and then merge that back together. Under the covers, the operating system is handling the scheduling of when, when and where those threads run. Uh, but if you were to just give it a lot of threads, we'd, we'd be back to having to explicitly write it at the thread level. But it is really interesting that it's, it, it is sort of like what the OS does moved up into the, into the app domain. In a sense, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I also wanted to mention, too, just the problem with concurrency seems to be what most people think about uh, when they think about writing a multi-threaded app, which is, I guess, sort of akin to with a database, you've got to lock data in the scope of a transaction yep. so you're certain that the data isn't changed by another user. But there are probably a lot more issues that really come up with threading than than simply locking the data. Is that right? It there seems are. to be that seems to be what people focus on the most is where do I lock? Yep. Yeah. So shared state uh, when you're writing multi-threaded applications is definitely one of the primary issues. Um, and but, but there are lots of other issues besides that. So if you look at something like Parallel Link, um, there are things that people might not even consider when they're starting to write to turn their link query into a parallel link query. For example, if I write a simple query that, say I have an array and I sort the array, 
and then I use link to iterate over it. And if I had random numbers 1 through 10, and then I sorted them, so I get 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and I write a query that says from i in array, uh, select i, or select i times 2. I expect to get back 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, etc. But if I turn that into a p-link query, now all of a sudden I'm parallelizing this and I'm processing this data on multiple threads, and in doing that, these threads can be executing at different times, and this data can get out of order. And so the result from the healing query won't necessarily be the same 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. It might be 4, 8, 0, 2, 10, et cetera. So I guess the question is, you know, where do we need to worry about ordering? And that's really up to the developer. Um, and if the developer is doing something that relies on ordering, then we need to be concerned with it. If they're doing something that doesn't, then we don't. And that's why, it, yeah. sorry, if in P-Link we actually allow you to turn on ordering uh, if you need it. That was my question. All right, so it's a, it's a matter of correlation, right? If you if you have an, a number or something that you can associate with for order, then you could you can put it back together in the right order. Exactly. Does the link language, for lack of it, or syntax, I guess is the word, does the link syntax have the equivalent of an order by? Uh, it does, so link does have an order by, um, and so does plink, basically for doing sorts within your query. Um, however, by default, just since based on how it was implemented, link queries are sort of inherently in order. Uh, they don't do anything to perturb the order of the data, and thus it comes out, in a sense, in the same order that it was put in. Whereas in plink, we're sort of, as a side effect of doing this stuff in parallel, explicitly making your stuff unordered. So even if you use order by with a p-link query, you can't guarantee that it's going to come back in the right order. If you were to do order by, we would sort it, and then it might not come back in the right order. Um, so we, we are doing things, and we're currently investigating changes to the programming model with p-link, since, as I mentioned, we're still an early preview, still right. active development. Um, and we're trying to figure out what the right defaults are. If someone has an order by, do they expect that to explicitly reorder the query? Um, do they expect it to be ordered by default in order for those, only for those folks that are trying to eke out as much performance as possible right. turn off ordering? Um, but one of the design decisions we made early on with P-Link was that it's all about performance. You know, the, the only reason you would go from link to P-Link was because you were trying to improve the performance right. of your application. And thus, there are certain times where we've made trade-offs between ease of use and performance, and this is one of those issues. And don't you also think that inherently when you're doing a link query, you're pulling back a few items from a larger set, not necessarily a large set from a humongous set? Potentially. And in those cases, depending on what, your pro what the processing you're doing is, P-Link may not be appropriate. Right. Um, one of the other issues that we run into, you know, you, we talked about ordering, is just data sets where using P-Link, the overhead to doing the parallelism will actually be more than the work required to do the query initially. Right. Um, but th that's not always the case. So if you pull back even five items, but I was doing a few seconds worth of processing on each item, then parallelism may very well make sense. And similarly, there are many cases where people use Link to process more than just a few items. Um, first, it provides a very nice programming model for doing these filters and sorts and projections and so forth. But also, um, people, if you're, if you're using Link, for example, to pull, Link to SQL, to pull back data from a bunch of disparate databases, and then you want to process the data once the data comes to you and aggregate across multiple servers, for example, or uh, combine from Link to SQL with Link to XML with Link to Amazon to whatever, um, that's a lot of data you're processing, and you want. It's a very nice skill to use a link-like programming model in your application code on your client, and P-Link would be very useful there. Now, um, this is a question I wanted to ask about 15 minutes ago, and I'm just getting around to it now. But it, it, I think I have the answer, which is the question is: it, it, there isn't any required 
goo that you have to write in order to make your link query a p-link query other than just say, I want this to be parallel. Right. That there isn't any, you don't have to get in, the, in there and do anything, right? So there's some minor goo. Okay. Uh, and that minor goo is right now adding to the end of your data source, dot as parallel. Oh, well, that's, that's okay. So that's the goo. Um, they, we've explored other programming models. For example, being able to, rather than saying using system.link at the top of your C-sharp file or imports system.link at the top of your VB file, saying imports system.link.parallel or using system.link.parallel. Um, and that would automatically change all the link queries in your entire file. But we felt that that was too much magic and too, too much hidden from the developer because there are times when you don't want your queries to be Link. We don't want them to implicitly use p-link. We want people to opt in. Right. Um, and no surprises. No surprises. And so we do explicitly force you to say as parallel on each query you want converted to a p-link query. Um, there are there is more you can do. There are, for example, options you can pass to as parallel to. Uh, we talked about ordering to turn on ordering. So in the current program model, you can say as parallel parallel query options dot preserve ordering. Well, what does that mean? Turn on ordering. Does that mean that you're you're doing a resort? afterwards to make sure that it does come back in the right order? It could degrade to that. There are lots of things we can do along the way to minimize the impact uh, that a sort would add, which would basically be an n log n hit at the end of the query. Mm -hmm. There are things we can do along the way to, in many situations, prevent us having to do that or do it incrementally along the way. But worst case, that's what it would be. Right. And does the library make those decisions? Is it analyzing how is the best way I can... To the best of its ability, yeah. yeah. We are investigating, uh, and I think one of the changes people will see in the next preview release will be additional uh, API changes to P-Link, where you can still say as parallel, but we, we might explicitly allow you to control, say, how the data is partitioned and how the data is merged and when it's sorted and all that kind of stuff for advanced developers that really want to get into the nitty-gritty of how it's happening. But the whole idea is that this thing has smarts in terms of scheduling and knowing the number of cores. Now, um, just just in case anybody hasn't had this shock of a thought yet, we're looking at, you know, everybody talks about within the next 10 years or the next five years, but very soon now, we're going to have 64-core machines. Yeah. And they're going to get bigger and bigger and more and more cores. That's that's how machines are going to scale. Yeah, so I'd be surprised if, if, if folks in this room have laptops if most of them weren't dual cores. At least dual core, um, yeah. You can buy quad-core machines on the market today. We have a quad-core laptop. Um, you can buy eight core machines that are pretty much commodity. You can go to, you know, and both I take for it, Mac and PC. And I take it that the parallel extensions will automatically figure out how many cores there are and do some sort of intelligent scheduling with the threads. How does that work? So at, at a basic level, the first answer is yes. At the basic level, we can just query the operating system and say, tell us how many cores there are. But we can also figure out, ask it for more information. For example, what the architecture of the machine is. If it's mm. like a non-uniform memory access or NUMA machine. Uh, we might perform differently. Uh, Non-uniform memory. Tell me about that. Let's geek out here, man. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I should figure out how to explain it. Um, there are lots of bottlenecks in a computer where uh, inefficiencies can be introduced. And one of those is in access over the bus to access memory. Mm. Um, and the more cores you add, the more traffic there's going to be over that bus. Yes. Okay. So if you could break memory up into multiple pieces and have certain pieces of memory assigned to different cores in the machine, then those cores will be able to access the local memory very fast and with sure. minimal traffic. But worst case, one of them needs to access something on another node, right. and so it does require multiple bus accesses across and basically traveling through the other CPUs to get to that, and that's non-uniform memory. 
Ooh. So this is an architecture of, of PCs that we're seeing? It's, there are, yeah, so uh, I think AMD is, is looking at it more and more for, for their work going forwards. There are machines today that do it. Most, uh, most machines that we have on our desktop are not NUMA, but I think they'll become more and more common. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 AJAX applications with Web 1.0 components? Right. You just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components. And that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have for you. Their upcoming product, codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus, is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET AJAX, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET AJAX API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple of properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, the facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. But again, it's best to try for yourself. Visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So um, other than P-Link, what, um, what kinds of things are in the... Right, so the, the next piece is something we call the Task Parallel Library, mm-hmm. which in the current vert, in the CTP, P-Link is not built on top of, but moving forward it will be. Uh, right now P-Link is just built on top of the thread pool, because if you look at the quality of the bits in the CTP, P-Link was much further ahead. We started on it much earlier than we did for the Task Parallel Library. Okay. Um, but the Task Parallel Library is really a method for doing... Uh, uh, Task-based parallelism, um, sort of like the asynchronous, uh, uh, the asynchronous programming model, in a form. Yeah, um, and it basically allows you to. Well, it's actually for doing both task and data parallelism. So if you start at the high yeah. layer, um, we introduce a system dot threading, a system dot threading dot parallel class, and parallel has uh, a variety of static methods on it. So I can call parallel dot for or parallel dot for each or parallel dot do. Wow. Um, and if I had a for loop, for, uh, a for loop where I said for i equals zero, well i is less than n, do something. Now I can say parallel for zero n, do something. Wow. Um, and under the covers, we create all the necessary tasks and split it up across the cores and so forth and get this work to execute on all of the available parallelism in the hardware. Yeah, we were looking earlier at the install for this, Stephen. Um, are you replacing system.threading or are you just adding these things to the system threading namespace. So as of .NET 3.5, there is no system threading DLL. Um, all of the system threading classes are in MS Core Lib or system or system core. Uh, ah. And so we're looking to introduce a system.threading.dll, um, potentially. Um, and But all of our stuff is in the system threading or system threading.sub namespace right. uh, namespaces. Yeah, that was confusing uh, to when we were looking at the videos of Right, and I, I didn't know that. I just thought you had replaced it with a new version of system threading. Right. right. No, uh, it's just, everything we're doing is pure augmentation to everything that's already there. So, um, again, we're talking about tasks, which seem like operating system tasks. Right, um, so at, at a high level, the, the task parallel library is this, this parallel class for doing um, sort of a form of data parallelism, where I can say, 
for everything in this loop, I want you to do X, Y, Z, or for everything in this collection, I want you to do X, Y, Z, or uh, if I have multiple statements, if I have statement one, statement two, statement three, and I want to potentially execute those in parallel, I can say parallel do statement one, statement two, <laughs> statement three. Wow. Which is really cool for... That is cool. Uh, for, uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, especially for uh, recursive scenarios. For example, if I was doing a, a quick sort, uh, and I do a, a partition step where I split my array into two pieces, those that are less than a certain pivot and those that are more than a pivot, and then I do a, um, a recursive uh, kind of quick sort on the left side of the array and on the right side of the array. So I can say parallel do quick sort left, quick sort right, and move on. And then that parallel class is built on top of this lower level um, set of types in the system.threading.tasks namespace, um, the, the main class of which is called task, and it has a me method task.create. And so today I might say threadpool.queues or work item, and I give it a delegate to execute, and it goes mm. off and executes somewhere on a background thread. Right. Um, but there's a, one of the biggest problems with that is thread, uh, queues or work item returns void. Nothing. Uh, after you, it's gone. It's gone. You gotta wait for it to come back. Yeah, and, and there's no good way to wait for it to come back because yeah. there's no wait method, right. for example. So if you want to do that, you have to augment the work item you queue with your own waiting logic, right. and it requires all this knowledge of manual reset events and so Those forth. There, yeah, and can be very inefficient if used incorrectly. So our task.create not only takes a work item and has it execute on some background thread, but it also returns to you a task instance. And this task instance allows you to call wait, or wait with timeouts, or nice. cancel. And nice. if you call cancel and it hasn't started, it won't start. Um, you can join across a bunch of different tasks and so forth. So the, there's a, a task manager class, I guess, which is sort of analogous to a thread pool it in is. this way that sort of organizes and controls these guys much much like I think the OS does to the to the task. It does, uh, and at a high level, it's it's very similar. But if you compare it to something like the thread pool, which is a static class in .NET, uh, task manager is not. You can actually create instances of task managers. Uh, one of uh, uh, several customers have made requests on the thread pool to be able to create instances of the thread pool rather than just having one for the whole app domain or process. Mm. Um, and so task manager allows you to create a task manager for, say, four threads, and then a task manager for eight threads, and a task manager for 12 threads, or whatever. And then as I create work items, I can choose to put it on this task manager, or that task manager, or that task manager. As you can imagine if I was doing like multimedia or something, and I wanted yeah. um, eight threads dedicated to video, and four threads dedicated to audio, and then one thread dedicated to background logging or something. As I create my tasks, I can choose, all right, I want it on that task manager with more you know, eight threads, and this one with four mm -hmm. threads. Uh, so an interesting thing I was just thinking about, uh, so you can, you can create, let's say, four threads, but then you may queue up 16 different tasks. Mm -hmm to be uh, executed on those threads. Uh, is there any anything as far as the algorithm that decides which of those tasks are processed first? Can you control it with a priority setting? Something of that nature? So in the current implementation, you can't control, you can't assign priorities to work items. Um, we try and do a lot of that under the covers. Um, you can do priorities at the task manager level, or at least we're planning to allow that. Uh, it, you can't in the current CTP. Um, but this does bring up an interesting difference between the thread pool and the, the task manager. Um, thread pool is basically a single FIFO queue mm -hmm. where I, I put items in, they're processed in a first in, first out order. Right. Um, all the threads in the thread pool are basically uh, synchronizing or having a lot of contention on this DQ side of the queue pulling things out. Um, and that can lead, especially as the number of cores increases, it can lead to... Uh, inefficiencies in the thread pool. And so under the covers of task manager, we, we use what's called a work-stealing scheduler. Um, rather than having a, a single queue that all these threads contend on, uh, there's still a global queue, but all threads have their own queue as well. 
And if any of those, if, if, when, if I originally, initially put work into this queue, the, the global queue, just like with the thread pool, threads come along and, and take from it. But if any of those tasks end up creating new work, it goes into the local queue. And in fact, they're not really queues, they're more like decks where you can, um, the, the task itself uh, that's running on that core can push and pop from one end of the queue. But if other threads need work, and there's nothing in the global queue, for example, they can steal from the other end of the, the deck and pull work out of there. And one of the neat things is when the, when the tasks are, are pushing and popping from this one, from their side of the queue, there's no contention because they're, they're the only ones that are allowed to. Um, there are other, well, yeah, there are other benefits to it as well. And the, um, the, the main goal of the task manager, as I understand, is to make sure, is, is to have one thread per core. Like, that's like the ultimate state of multi-threaded nirvana, isn't it? That's ideal if they're all doing work. Right. Um, but if, for example, one of those threads were to block on some synchronous I.O. It would go to another core. Well, the next that minute. thread would inherently be blocked, and so we want to, we don't want to lose that core for doing work. So we yeah. can introduce additional threads onto that core to process right. more data. Yeah, we were looking at a demo earlier, and uh, it was just the, the CPU utilization per core went, you know, went up. falls to the wall once. That's what we like to see, as yeah. long as it's useful work. Right? We, we don't want to see, if there's a lot yeah. of overhead, we don't want that overhead contributing to a false sense of security. You don't want to type it 100%, but right. uh, you're only doing 25% useful work. So we try and avoid that if possible. Sure. Fabulous. So the CTP uh, has the, the task and task manager classes. Yep. It has P-Link. Um, there's more to it, right? There is. So in, in that CTP, there, there are obviously um, you know, more types than we just described, but there's also a third piece that's not at all in the CTP, which we're actively working on. Um, if you look at the implementations of P-Link and the TaskPower library itself, they rely on a lot of data structures and coordination constructs and synchronization primitives that we've had to roll ourselves because they're, they're very common when implementing these sorts of data parallel operations and task parallel operations, but they don't exist in .NET. Um, and we need them. Lots of, we, we hear from customers all the time that they need them. And so we're basically making them public. Um, and we, we have a whole set of these uh, coordination data structures uh, and, and synchronization primitives. So you can, we allow you to create very scalable concurrent collections. Like or, synchronized collections has always been a problem. Synchronized, yeah. yeah. So if you look at .NET 1.0 and 1.1, it's even there today, but they're in a sense deprecated. Uh, there's like system.collections.arraylist. And you could call arraylist.synchronized. Synchronized. Yeah. Synchronized, yeah. It's a static method. You pass it an arraylist and you get back what looks like an arraylist, but it's really this sync arraylist that's yeah. derived from arraylist, overrides right. all the virtual methods, and internally takes out locks um, every time I call uh, add or remove or count, it takes a lock, does the operation on the base class, and returns it. Um, this has lots of problems. Um, one is locks are expensive, especially as you scale up the number of cores, yeah. and you're having a lot of contention. Um, an uh, another is, uh, well, th there are some performance issues from having all these virtual methods by default. Um, but there are, are worse issues that aren't necessarily apparent that are in how you use these APIs. For example, if I have a stack, and I created a, a synchronized stack, I might say, if the count of the stack is greater than zero, pop. But if you look at the implementation, when I call count, yeah, it's getting a lock under the covers and it's returning the count. Yeah. And then when I do pop, it's taking a lock under the covers and I pop. But that whole operation isn't locked. And so between the time I call count and compare it to zero, and the time I pop, another thread could have come in and decremented the count so to zero. So in that case, you probably want to like a sync or in VB a sync lock around that whole block of code. 
This, these are the kinds of things that drive us crazy as programmers. Like, where, how much of this should go in my sync lock? You know, I'm not really locking an object. I'm locking a block of code. Absolutely. And using an object. And that, that's always just driven me nuts. It drives us nuts too. And right. it's the type of thing we try to address in the creation of these APIs. For example, we have a, a concurrent stack. Um, and we have pop, uh, so we have push just like the stack has push. But rather than exposing a count and a pop operation, since you typically do if count is greater than zero pop, we have a try pop. And in one operation, Good. you, you call try pop. If it was able to get something, if it wasn't able to get something, it returns false. If it was, it returns true and it gives you back the item is able to pop. And then internally, we, we don't use locks. Wherever possible, we use lock re-implementation. Sort of like peak and in a queue. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same Ex idea. It's like peak, except we actually modify it. So yeah. it's, you know, it's a pop, but in one fell swoop. A try pop. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, and, and, and here's another question, getting back to the task uh, library for just a minute. There's a, um, uh, a class that derives from task, which I thought was really intriguing, called future. It's a very cool class. Tell us about future. So future is really meant for kind of data flow style programming. Um, but the idea is you have a task, and that task returns a value. Uh, and this would be very common, especially in functional languages. But I have some operation that I kick off because it computes something, and later I want the results. But a lot of times when we write software, we compute the results even though we don't necessarily meet, need it right now. We might need it five instructions later or in the next function or something. The idea behind future is you create a future for some function that returns a value, and you get back a future of t. And then later on, I can say future.value. If it's already finished, future.value just returns the value. If it hasn't, it blocks waiting for it to complete. So you pass, you say, I want a new future of, and then pass it an, a, 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 a delegate or an address of a... You pass it a delegate, a lambda delegate? expression, anonymous method. You know, they're all basically the wow. same. Um, so I can, rather than saying var x equals compute, I can say var x equals future.create compute. Yeah, that would lend itself very well to functional programming because that's essentially what functional programming is. Um, and which brings me to F sharp. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, F sharp functional programming, obviously a big hit in the financial district, in the financial services industry. Absolutely. And I think there's some talks on it today. Yeah. So how does, how does this work with F sharp? Uh, so we're working very closely with Don Syme and various members of the F sharp team. Uh, they do play very nicely together, or at least they will when they're released if they don't currently. Um, and uh, first and foremost, the work we're doing is all a library. And one of the reasons we're doing it as a library is because my, you know, there are several micro languages, .NET languages that Microsoft creates, C Sharp, VB, C++, CLI, F Sharp, Iron Python, Iron Ruby, right. et cetera. Um, we want all of those and not just one language to be able to use this library. And in that vein, F Sharp can just consume this like any other library and make calls to it like any other library. <laughs> Just seems to me that recursion plus concurrency equals big headache. <laughs> Possibly, but in a world like F sharp, where typically a lot of what you're doing is immutability, um, and you know you have these pure functions that aren't necessarily mm -hmm. modifying shared state, mm -hmm. it can actually be very beautiful. You look at a language like Lisp, which is inherently recursive; it's all about recursion, the ultimate, uh, um, and it's about modifying these in a typically immutable lists. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of the ultimate, and you can imagine introducing concurrency into a language like Lisp fairly easily. Um, but in addition to allowing uh, our stuff to be consumed from F-Sharp, working closely with the F-Sharp team to see what we can introduce into the F-Sharp language that will allow easy consumption of parallel extensions from F-Sharp. You take something like the um, asynchronous workflow capabilities of F-Sharp. That could be a very nice thing on top of yes, the task in our library. Yeah. You look at the sequence operators that exist in F-Sharp. Those could be very nice on top of P-Link and so forth. Fabulous. So uh, what else haven't we talked about? 
Uh, I think we've covered most of it. Uh, so we uh, we released. Oh, I have another question. Yeah, sure. So let's say that I wanted to play around with this today. Yep. And I've got Visual Studio 2008 installed. Yep. Uh, is this is this uh, any impact as far as if I want to install the CTP and then later take it off? Can I do that? On my my machine, I use for development every day. You can totally do that. I can tell you exactly what the installer does. Uh, the installer drops this DLL, uh, system.threading.dll, mm -hmm. into c colon slash program files slash Microsoft Parallel Extensions the .NET Framework December 2007 CTP or something like that. I am so impressed. <laughs> I'm not sure I got a round that of right, applause, but... <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That was impressive. Thank you. Uh, and of course, your disk might be different. Um, it registers the the assembly in the GAC. Um, it also, you know, if, you, if you browse, if you uh, add a reference in Visual Studio to uh, an assembly, there's a list. That list isn't actually pulled from the GAC, it's pulled from a certain registry key. So we add ourselves to that registry key. Um, and we also drop some docs and similar stuff onto the disk. But you could go in, even if you didn't have the installer, you could remove it from the GAC, remove it from that registry key, remove it from the disk, and it's gone. And you're all done. All right. cool. And on the note of working with Visual Studio 2008, we don't require, we're just an assembly. We don't require any particular version. So if you wanted to, you could download Visual C Sharp 2008 Express or VB 2008 Express, and it would work just fine. Oh, that's awesome. But it does require .NET 3.5? It does require .NET 3.5. Uh, we require, uh, for several reasons. One, Link. So parallel Link is sort of nothing without Link. Mm -hmm. um, and two, uh, we, we do rely on some of the delegates that were introduced in 3.5. The, these, um, action and funk delegates are what the task parallel library is built around. Do you think that uh, P-Link will be more widely used than, uh, say, the task library? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, one of the great things about P-Link is that it really raised, significantly raises the abstraction for doing multi-threaded development, um, which yeah. is fabulous. And, it, and virtually no effort. And virtually no effort. Um, the Another thing that P-Link kind of, well, that Link lends itself nicely to is typically when people write these queries, the delegates they're passing to their where or their select or their order by, they're pure. Um, they don't explicitly modify any state. And thus, it's much easier to migrate a Link query to a P-Link query because we sort of explicitly require without, well, we don't do any checking for it, that these delegates you're providing are pure. Um, the task parallel library where you're taking these potentially huge for loops uh, which may very well be modifying shared state and turning them into a parallel for loop, that could lead to more issues. So I, as long as people are writing link queries that do a significant amount of work, I, I, I do imagine that P-Link will be kind of the main entry point for this. And where possible, it would be great to see people use P-Link. Uh, under the hood, are you using STM, Software Transactional Memory? Can I ask that question? You can certainly ask the question. So, <laughs> and I'll, I'll answer to the best of my ability. Uh, STM is really still in research uh, across okay. the industry. Okay. Um, you look at someone like Intel, they've added um, uh, STM to their research C++ compiler. Uh, if you look at Microsoft, Microsoft Research has been doing a lot of work, Tim Harris and Simon Peyton Jones and Jim Laris and a bunch of yeah. other guys. Um, but there are still a lot of uh, blockers that pretend STM for making it to the mainstream. And so lots of companies are actively working on it. For those who don't know what we're talking about, you could think of software transactional memory as sort of like a like a like a database transaction really. When uh you have a block of code that you want to access in parallel and you have, you know, the typical problem is with locking is to prevent access to different members at the same time from different on different threads. Well, what it does is that it executes and then essentially does it twice and sees if the 
the the the the results are the same. And if they aren't, or if they are, then then it allows the transaction to go through. And if it if they aren't, then it executes again. And so it just keeps executing until it doesn't have a problem. So nine times out of ten, it's going to be just as fast. But you know, in those situations where you do have uh, race conditions, it'll just have to execute again until it doesn't get a race condition. Yeah, it's very much like uh, a great analogy is data, uh, database transactions. Right? Yeah. Database developers don't worry about locks. They say, I want the following code to execute as part of a transaction. Right. And the database itself figures out when to take row locks and when to take table locks and making it as fine-grained as possible. And you can imagine STM doing the same thing, right. keeping track of all your writes and reads for memory and making sure that they're all uh, consistent. Um, one of the issues with STM, the reason it's one of the reasons it's still in research, is that the performance, um, while it has great performance promises, currently there are still performance issues with it because we are keeping track of every read and write to memory. I would think that the performance would increase with the number of cores and the number of you know the, the power. That's the theory. Yeah. Yeah, that is the theory. You know, I've I've always been curious about this, and in the world of databases, you you can sort of control how aggressive locking is by uh, setting an isolation level. Mm -hmm. Is there anything like that for threading at all? Not really. Uh, it either works or it doesn't. You either have a race it's, condition it's or like, it's like I mean, you can, a, a, you, can, you can explicitly control how coarse or how fine your locking is, um, mm -hmm. but that's an explicit decision on behalf of the programmer. Coarse locking is much easier to do, but it's also much less efficient because as more and more of your code becomes locked, it becomes serialized. Right. Um, whereas fine-grain locking can be much more efficient but it's also incredibly difficult to get right, and you start introducing deadlock issues and live lock issues and so forth into your right. code. And the same, the same thing happens with the database as well. You yeah. know, in certain conditions, you deadlock if you're not careful. So if you inherit, for example, if you inherit from a context-bound object, that object is thread-safe, right? But if you pay the penalty because every time it gets referenced, it locks. Um, yeah, depending on how you use it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want while we're asking you tough questions. Sure. So uh, I I read a while back about fibers yep. and the SQL Server engine uses uh, something called fibers. Mm -hmm. So you avoid context switches. Is that right with a fiber? So the idea behind fiber fibers are, it's basically a user mode form of scheduling where um, the OS is creating. You have threads that the OS is scheduling, but if in user mode code I wanted to take a lock or something or I wanted to switch to a different thread, that requires a trip back to the OS, that requires saving off all of the state from the threads, that right. requires switching in a new thread. Yes. It's thousands and thousands of cycles. Um, in user mode code, if I knew a lot, basically everything about what was happening in my system, um, fibers allow me to kind of create, in a sense, user mode threads. Um, not exactly, but that's the basic idea where I control how these context switch happen. I control all of the the fibers that I have, and I explicitly switch between them, and I call, you know, I basically switch from fiber to fiber. At the OS level, the OS doesn't doesn't know that necessarily that I'm I'm doing the switching. I'm just basically doing it to avoid the thread level context switches. Gotcha. Now, is that is that something that's easy to do in the .NET framework? Uh, no. I, um, so it was actually, uh, if you look back during the betas of the CLR 2.0. Um, Fiber support was something that they were they had built in up until the very end, and it was something you could enable if you were writing a CLR host, uh, particularly for SQL Server. Um, and it was ripped out at the last minute because they just couldn't get it to work um, well enough. Mm -hmm. um, you could try to use the fiber APIs through pinvoke and whatnot from your own .NET code, but there are a lot of potential problems with doing sure. so. So the mess, you know, the idea is stay away from fibers. Right. So you, if, if you had to do it for some reason, I guess writing non-managed code would, would be... Oh, yeah, right. absolutely. If you're, if you're yeah. writing native code, 
fibers can be great, and SQL Server does allow you to use them. Um, I, I think it's still in there. Joe Duffy, who was on your show a few months ago, who's right. on our team as well. He's our dev lead. Um, he has a really great book coming out um, sometime later this year, and I read one of the sample chap one of the chapters from it. Um, and he has a full example of implementing a, a fiber-based scheduler. Um, so if you really want to geek out, go buy his book when it comes out. All right, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Fibers. I thought I was just wrapping my mind around threads. Now we have micro-threads. Micro. You need to add more fiber into your diet. Just eat some rope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some rope. Rope with milk. So uh, the, how long has the CTP been out? So the CTP has been out for several months now. It was released at the end of November or beginning of December. Um, and we're actively in development now on, on making it better. If you look at the quality of the CTP, for the most part, we released it as sort of an API evaluation. We want to know that the APIs we're building are right. Performance-wise, depending on what you do, it might not be so great. Are you getting some good feedback? We're getting some great feedback, but we need more. So all you listeners out there, please download the CTP. Please try it out. Let us know what, you, what you're doing with it, what you can't do with it. If there are APIs you don't understand, if there are APIs you think we should add, if there's new functionality, we would love, love, love to hear about it. What are some of the known issues, if there are any? So if you go up on our blog, we have a, a team blog, blogs.msdn.com slash pfxteam. Um, we probably have a link to it yep. in the show notes. Um, we have, as one of the first posts on there, which we posted just after the CTP was released, uh, a whole slew of known issues. So you can go up there and read it. Um, some of them are things like, you know, this won't behave as you expect, or the performance here is horrible, and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, so we, we really released it to get an early sense of what people think, and we're in active development, cleaning it up, making it perform splendidly, uh, adding new features, and so forth. You wouldn't necessarily use this with an ASP.NET application, would you? Or would you? Is there an instance where parallelism works well on ASP.NET? You could. Uh, one of the things about web applications like ASP.NET is that, assuming you have a lot of requests coming in, thousands of requests, typically you can already saturate all the all the cores. Right, because every session is running on a different thread. Anyway. Right. Yeah. But that's not to say this you couldn't use this with ASP.NET, and for certain scenarios you might do. You might want to, and one of our goals is to make sure that we play nicely with ASP.NET so that you could use this in an ASP.NET application if you really wanted to. Um, and there are certain times when, when you may. If you had a, a low-traffic site or the CPU utilization on your machine, on your, in your in the nodes in your server farm was less than 10% or something, you might consider uh, scaling up using it. Certainly sessions. P-Link would be easy to use. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's basically a synchronous process to you, yep. but asynchronous on the back end. So. And one of the nice things about the simply switching back and forth between link and p-link with this as parallels, you could try it out, see how it goes. And right. if it didn't buy you anything or it slowed you down in some fashion, you could scale back. Yeah. Could be a uh, config, a web.config option. If sure. the ASP.NET team wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that we haven't covered? I have another question. You have another question. I've got all the time, so it's up to you I guys. Imagine that. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious now if I, if I wanted to use this in production, uh, do you have any plans for a go live license or do I need to wait for the 4.0 framework or something at some point? So you should definitely wait for when we release this. Uh, the dates for that and what the vehicle is hasn't been announced yet. Right. Um, but we are actively in production development. And so at some point you will certainly be able to use this in release, in, in, in production. And that's our goal. Could we say not too distant future? Or? Sure, it, I, I'm assigning no time. If that frame makes to what you that happy. Is. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me happy. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, in the grand scheme of the millennium, sure. Okay. Well, Stephen, it's been very enlightening. Oh, Thank my you. pleasure. I love this topic, and I love the work you guys are doing. Keep sure. it up. We're happy to come back anytime. Stephen Taub, ladies and gentlemen.
We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.